Netherlands Worldwide presents Radio Books, a series of contemporary Dutch and Flemish short stories in English translation. Hello and welcome to Radio Books. I'm David Swatling. Cristina Goicotzia Langarica was born in Spanish Basque country in 1971 and has lived in the Netherlands since 1995. She began working as a translator and writing for Dutch literary magazines. Avamar, her first novel written in Dutch and published last year, is about three generations of Basque women. In her radio book story, a man who has spent more than 30 years in Africa as a missionary experiences a bittersweet homecoming. Here's Twelve Hours is a Long Time by Christina Goicetzia Langarica. It's read by Paul Clark. Can you drop me off there? Daniel asked the oldest priest in his order. He pointed to a grey stone at the side of the road. Written on it in white paint was two kilometres. But then you'll still have two kilometres to walk, said the priest, looking at him. I need them, father, those two kilometres. The priest was still looking at Daniel as he braked slowly. Daniel got out. He looked straight ahead. The lines of the road ran on straight into infinity. Daniel knew exactly what they used to be at the bottom of the hill, a couple of dozen houses scattered at random. He wondered whether he would see the same things when he went down. The triangles and squares of the red roofs, drawn between green trees and brown hillsides. Thirty-two years is a long time for a village to stay frozen. Here, said the priest, when he got out of the car. He handed him his worn sports bag. In it, he had put all the lay clothes he'd ever had in his life. He'd left his priest's habit in the monastery. Daniel took the bag without looking at him. A grey cloud lay on the horizon. The sun was slowly sinking behind it. The rays which managed to escape through the dense cloud were changing from yellow to red. The priest stood before him and embraced him. Don't forget, Daniel, said the priest, if it all gets too much for you, you can always come back to us. Daniel nodded and closed the car door. The old white Ford dwindled into the distance. Daniel stood with his hand raised until the car had disappeared into the endless straight white lines of the grey road. A sunbeam burst through the clouds and shone in his eyes. He started walking towards it. 
They knew he was coming back, but not the exact time. They'd not be gathered together to wait for him. Fast cars occasionally passed by. The sound stayed around for ten seconds after they'd driven down. He walked between the white lines on the side of the road and the ditch, which separated the road from the green fields. He suddenly noticed tall grey fences behind the hedgerows. And behind that, the football pitch. It was no longer sand as he remembered it. He always came home caked in mud. Mother then complained about the amount of work it would take to get everything clean again. The first thing that reminded Daniel of home when he arrived in the small African village was the sand of the football pitch. The children caked in mud, with mothers who were also complaining about how much they'd need to wring out the clothes to get them clean. In Obanama, the football pitch was still made of sand. Here, Daniel now saw a trimmed turf surface, just like a carpet. Grey pipes in the middle were spraying water around. He moved closer to the fence. Drops of water landed on his face. He closed his eyes and let the sprinklers wet him a couple of more times. Then he walked on. As he descended the slope, his heart started to beat faster. Everyone was sure to ask him why he'd suddenly returned. It was a long time since he got worked up about anything. He had to learn to wait patiently and take what things brought, also to see that they often brought nothing. There was no point in worrying. Ultimately, things happened the way they felt like happening. Just like now, with his liver, his spleen. Just like now, with him. No to the HST. The text was written in red on a white sheet and hung on the side of the church tower. HST? It was like the name of a sexually transmitted disease. But then they wouldn't have allowed something like that to be hung on the church tower. HST? Something high-tech, perhaps. Daniel saw the first villagers walking in the arcade around the church square, four of them. The sky had turned blue in the twilight, but there was something golden about them, as if someone was pointing them out with a lantern, as long as they didn't recognize him. He wanted to see the family first. News traveled fast in the village. Mother's house was near the church square, too near. When he was a child, mother and father had received the news that he had taken a bath in the fountain one second after he had done it. Even though he'd lain in the sun for an hour afterwards so that his clothes were completely dried. Why do you make your mother so unhappy? said father. Why do you make your mother so unhappy? That's what father always said. Daniel had heard of his father's death by letter. It was still early in his time in Obanama. More than one of the priests in the mission had already lost a father or mother. They would say goodbye in the little church. Daniel had tried to do it like that too, there, sitting alone in the first pew of the little church, with a view of the altar, where he said Mass on Tuesdays. But Daniel felt that saying goodbye to his father had to be a dialogue, and in the church you could only have a monologue. After that, he'd grown close to men his father's age in Obanama. Daniel asked them what he hadn't dared ask his father. Not just why the moon came out of the same corner of the sea as the sun, but also 
if they thought it was all right if he went swimming before he said morning mass for the villagers. The tree always loses its leaves, but you still love the tree. The old men with black skin scored by time understood better than anyone what answers he needed. Now he could see the figures from closer up. The women were wearing something on their head and had plastic bags in their hands. The men carried a hoe. When he reached them, he saw that they were black. African people in Laza. He'd never seen a black man in Laza before. Not in the town. Not in the capital. In fact, not in the entire country. Nor had the people of Laza. Daniel wanted to look them in the eye and give them the Obanama greeting, but they walked with heads bowed. Beside the Africans, he walked past the fountain in the middle of the church square. The bells began to ring. On the stroke of six, he was standing in front of his family home. The door was open. Mother? Daniel called up the stairwell. The television news was audible throughout the stairwell. The volume was on high. It smelled of damp and was semi-dark. He could see that the stairs had been changed. They were no longer made of stone and earth, but of tiles. Daniel stopped for a moment. He had the sensation that he was walking slowly into a cave, that he was visiting time, that he would suddenly have to look time in the eye. If he decided to stay in Obanama and to slowly disappear from the world with his illness, then the spirit of time would have remained unnoticed, like a faint mist which only reaches your ankles. But now the soul of time was a strong wind which you could hear coming from a long way off, a wind which you knew would hit you powerfully in the face. Mother, called Daniel again, we will not allow it. We will not let them drill through our mountains, said a man's voice. Daniel had reached the door of the living room where the television was on so loud. The head of the male voice filled the entire screen. Banners were suspended behind him. No HST. The same words he'd seen suspended from the church tower. Daniel stepped over the threshold. To the left of the television was a large armchair. Over the years, the beige material, with brown flowers, had grown lighter in colour. The wallpaper was different. The brown patterns had now been replaced by plain beige. Mother! Daniel stood in front of a big armchair. The first thing he saw were her two pale blue eyes. It took a while for those two eyes to shift from the television to him. They became even paler. The skin surrounding her eyes was healthy and tanned by the son of Laza. She wore golden earrings and red lipstick. Her wrinkles were as deep as the furrows of a ploughshare in fertile earth. This was exactly how he'd dreamt at night that his mother would grow old, but without the earrings and lipstick. Mother slowly started to lift her two arms from the deep hollow in the armchair nest, her eyes started to water. Her mouth began to smile. Daniel knelt to embrace her. She took his hand and dragged him to the kitchen. A bracelet made of gold coins rattled on the wrist of her right hand. Another one with loose chains on her left. 
Mother sat down on one side of the table. He sat on the other chair. His head was not straight, as he'd learned to sit in Obanama. He sat with his back bent like a child, whose legs are still too short to reach the ground. Ismail showed me on a map where you lived, said Mother, with her wrinkled hands on the kitchen table. There were liver spots on them. Very far away. Is he coming today? asked Daniel. He tried to imagine his brother Ismail with wife and children. Even the youngest must be out of puberty by now. How many hours were you in the plane? asked Mother, as if she hadn't heard his question. Twelve, all in all, said Daniel. Mother asked him again. He repeated the answer again. Mother asked him again. Twelve! said Daniel, almost screaming, and he was ashamed of himself for having screamed at his mother. I see twelve, said Mother. I saw on the television that a woman died because she'd been in the plane for so long. Her legs stopped. The blood stopped flowing through them. Daniel smiled. In his mother's open décolleté, he could see the golden medal of the Blessed Virgin, which he had always seen glittering when his mother bent over him to kiss him goodnight. I also saw a film on the television where a woman who was coughing a lot was really sick and infected the entire plane. And when they landed, the sickness spread, and the whole city in America somewhere was infected, and then almost everyone died. When are you flying back? she suddenly asked. But she didn't give him a chance to answer. Daniel, she said, you should stay here. Replace our parish priest. He's too old and old-fashioned. I already said it to your brother. Our Daniel would be a modern parish priest. Just a while ago he said it was a sin to play cards. Just like your father. Nothing's allowed, not even for us, the widows, because you're playing with money. We played for a couple of cents in the pensioners' club. It's the only fun we have. What does he think we should do then? Her last sentence resonated in the kitchen under the fierce fluorescent light. In the silence, his mother looked at her hands. Her nails were varnished red. Daniel remembered well how his father shouted when she painted her nails or put on lipstick. Only the toenails were allowed, he said. She stroked her left hand with her right and then the other way round. Her head was bowed. It was as if the hands with wrinkles and liver spots were trying to comfort each other about something that she didn't even know about. You're tired, eh? Twelve hours is a long time, she said. Upstairs she energetically pulled back the curtains, rolled up the blinds and opened the balcony doors. A bit of fresh air. It smells of dead tiger in here. I'll call Ismail. Then we'll all eat together tonight. Have a little rest. She walked to the door. At every step her golden bracelets rattled. Gold bracelets, décolleté, and red nails. If father were to see her now, he'd drop dead again. 
The room quickly became cold. He closed the doors to the balcony and lay down. His head was heavy on the pillow. It was filled with thirty-two years of Obanama. Now in one go they'd been joined by thirty-two years of Laza. Will Ismail be different, too, now that father no longer reigns over the household? But that had been less of a problem for Ismail than for him. Daniel was always the one who had to cope with father's outbursts. After all, he was the eldest. When Ismail came to tread the same path, it had been cleared for him. In the biggest things and in the smallest. For example, during the festivals. He was still young, but old enough to stay out late with the group, until dusk. In the last year, he'd returned home a couple of times with bread and the morning paper to find the door closed. The last time, father hit him. Soon after that, he was sent to the seminary. A firm hand was what he needed. He would return from the seminary a cultured man, or, at the least, as a respectable priest. In his cold calculations, father could never have envisaged that the congregation also had a foreign mission, far away, so far away that it could hurt them. Daniel felt the heat rising from his toes up to his neck. He raced to the toilet beside the bedroom. It started before he reached the toilet bowl. He grabbed the roll of paper. The blood splashed into the bowl of his hands, on the white floor tiles also. Back in bed, he turned on his side and curled up into a ball, his hand under his cheek. Through the balcony door he could see the light of the street lamp. It was located exactly beside the balcony. In that light, he imagined where his people in Obanama were right now, all together, eating or sitting at the fire, as they did every day. Daniel could also smell the scent of wet leaves and the warm sea which was ever-present in Obanama. There, too, life was just going on as usual. Daniel is with his people, they'll be thinking. But here, with his people... He saw himself from outside his body, as if he was hovering above himself, and in that position he saw very clearly that now he only had himself still. He could wrap his arms around his legs. That was the only real embrace, the only one he had experienced warmly, the only embrace exclusively for him. None of the other embraces counted, because those arms always had someone else who they embraced even more warmly. Daniel! He suddenly felt a hand on his shoulder. Ismail, grey-haired, was standing beside his bed and opened his arms. Daniel sat up. He laid his head on his brother's shoulder. He had to squint his eyes against the street lamp. Ismail suddenly released him. You look very different, said Ismail. You don't, said Daniel. I thought you'd be a lot browner after all those years in Africa, added Ismail. They continued to stare at each other. Ismail got restless. We can take a walk before the food is ready, said Ismail. Mother's not ready yet. David is coming too. Daniel stood up. He still had his shoes on. Who's David? asked Daniel. My youngest. You'll meet the rest of the gang tomorrow. They walked through the street beside Mother's house. 
The street lamps were on everywhere. More lights in which you could see other distant countries. Ismail didn't say anything. He scanned both sides of the street as if he was looking for a subject he could talk to his brother about. Or maybe he'd seen that he looked sick and suspected that that was the reason he'd come, but didn't dare ask about it. I suppose I should mention it myself, thought Daniel. After all, that's why he had come back. After a silence that had lasted too long, Daniel asked, What's HST? We're getting a high-speed train, said Ismail. At last, Laza will no longer be the back of beyond. There was silence again. They turned the corner into Laza's square. Daniel, said Ismail, and suddenly stopped in front of him. Mother's house, began Ismail. I mean, you can live there as long as Mother is alive. But Mother's house has been mine for years now, said Ismail with determination, as if he had already practised that sentence a hundred times. A couple of items of clothing and a toothbrush, a priest's only possessions. If only his brother knew that, thought Daniel. You can stay there as long as Mother is alive, he repeated. Daniel followed his brother. Only when they'd passed the market square did they fall in step again. At this time there was no one on the street. Everybody was eating. The last men were leaving the bar and heading for their homes. In the kitchens their wives had the food ready. What was it like with father? asked Daniel. Ismail looked surprised. I mean, what was it like when he died? Were you there? asked Daniel. Of course! Who else will be there? Who else, eh? Daniel read the old, decayed anger in his eyes. As they approached the house, the light from the street lamps grew stronger. The food was ready, on the kitchen table. The soup was steaming. Mother carefully poured it into the fourth bowl. The movement made her bracelet jangle. Daniel said grace, but the youngest did not appear, so they waited. What's he called? asked Daniel. David, said Ismail. I told you already. Mother wanted one grandchild at least with father's name, said Ismail. Daniel looked at mother. If he's not coming, shouldn't we just start? said mother, who again didn't hear anyone else. Suddenly a tall youth entered. He smelled of the street, of youth and cigarettes, of his own smell thirty-two years ago. The youth shook hands with Daniel. No embrace. Of course, when you've never seen your brother's children, you can't expect them to suddenly see you as an uncle. In Obanama they often called him Uncle Daniel, almost never Father Daniel, probably because when he arrived he was the youngest of the whole community. Your uncle is here and you leave us waiting, said Ismail. The young David looked at him and then at his father. I was at a demo in Barika, he said. Ismail drained his glass of water, got up and refilled his glass. Against the HST, continued David. Ismail sat down again and drained his glass of water in one gulp. Aren't you going to ask your uncle what Africa was like then? asked Ismail, looking pointedly at him. Can you sign the petition later, then, against the HST? asked David. David! shouted Ismail. 
Nevertheless, you could see that Mother hadn't heard. We need lots of signatures, continued David, without looking at his father. The HST is not even stopping in Laza. All we're getting is a hole in our mountain and two huge concrete pillars in our public swimming pool. Ismail turned to him too now, as if he wanted to convince him. But we can travel to Barika and we'll be in the capital pretty quick. Ismail glanced challengingly at his son. And why do you suddenly want to be able to go to the capital so quickly, when in fact you never go to the capital? David asked his father. Daniel looked from father to son, from son to father, as did mother. She couldn't hear what they were saying, but she had noticed the tension, the way it used to be. I'll remind you of this discussion in a few years' time, when you're sitting in a comfortable seat on the HST on your way to the capital, said Ismail as he spooned up the last drops from his bowl. Your uncle's been in a plane for twelve hours. He deserves a quiet reception. Of course I'll use the HST later. When they've drilled through the mountains and the swimming pools are full of concrete pillars, what difference will it make? David pushed his plate away without finishing his soup. He wiped his mouth with his napkin and crossed his arms as if he was preparing himself for an interesting discussion. What's all that about, then? he asked Daniel. I mean, saving souls in the dark continent. David! shouted his father, louder than usual. Mother heard that. She started talking. David, twelve hours. Your uncle Daniel was twelve hours in the plane. And mother told the story again about the woman who had infected an entire plane with her coughing, and then more stories about people who died because they spent too long in the plane. Daniel felt his feet getting warm again. He walked quickly to the bathroom. This time he only made the toilet bowl red. He put down the toilet lid and sat down. He needed to recover before going back to the kitchen table. He looked through the bathroom window. The street lamp opposite was turned off. Slowly, Daniel stood up. He'd phone the order tomorrow. Beside the grey stone, he would wait for the white ford beside the grey stone which said two kilometres. Twelve Hours is a Long Time by Christina Goikitsia Langarica was translated by Michael O'Loughlin and read by Paul Clark. The music was by Basque artist 
Mikael Ordangrin. I'm David Swatling, and I hope you'll join us again for Radio Books. To listen to other short stories in our Radio Books series, visit our website, radionetherlands.nl. We're always interested to hear what you think, and you can let us know by dropping us a line at letters at rnw.nl. You can also write to us at Radio Books, Radio Netherlands Worldwide, The English Department, P.O. Box 222-1200, J.G. Hilversum, The Netherlands. Radio Books is produced in association with the Flemish-Dutch House de Buren in Brussels and the Flemish broadcaster Clara. Radio Books is a presentation of Radio Netherlands Worldwide.